James chapter 1, tonight's, tonight's uh, is called Scripture Saturation. Does anybody have a clue as to what saturation means? Okay, soak one. That's good. I actually, I put that on, the, uh, on our PowerPoint slide here. Where is that? There it is. In a general sense, it means a filling or supply to fullness. However, I thought it was kind of interesting. There's also a, uh, uh, a chemistry class application for those of you who got uh, D's in chemistry like moi because it is an atrocious class, should not be taught in schools anymore, and it sucks. Anyways, in chemistry, listen up to this, it is the union, combination, or impregnation of one body with another by natural attraction, affinity, or mixture till the receiving body can contain no more. That's what saturation means. I have uh, something up here. It's a glass with a spoon and some uh, hydrogen and oxygen in it. That's water. Okay, that benefits us how. Great contribution. Great contribution. When I ask a question later, make sure you chime in. So I have water here and a spoon. Now here's the thing that's kind of neat about this. I have some uh, pure... <laughs> Finely ground salt. Thank you very much to Bobby Schilling, in case you were listening. I have like a 17-pound bag of salt here that I've had for three years, and I'm still not out of it, and I'll probably still be here till after the rapture. Here's the thing. If I put some of this in here... Huh? I'm getting to that. You, patience, patience. We talked about patience last week. Be patient. Okay. I put some salt in this. If I stir it in... You'll notice. Do you see anything? No. No, why? No, it doesn't saturate in. Thank you, AJ, for actually giving a, a, a the legible answer. It dissolved. I'm not going to drink it. This ain't last week. I ain't drinking it. And you know what? Even if I throw a little bit more in, if I just sprinkle some in, a dash, if you will, of salt. It dissolves. It dissolves. Yes, that's the correct terminology. You don't see anything. It's not settling. Because what's going on with the water molecules is that they are absorbing the salt and taking a part of their own. However, if I were to then grab this much salt, like let's say one and a half cups. And I start stirring it. No matter how much I stir it, no matter how much I do this, even if I were to dump this sucker into a blender and just start stirring it, you know what's going to happen? Absolutely nothing, Noah. Because the salt has saturated the water. In scientific terms, and I never really thought about it this way, in scientific terms, literally all of the water molecules have absorbed as much salt as they can. They literally cannot absorb anything else, and so the excess, the abundance, the overflow of the salt just sinks right down to the ground. This is what it means when we talk about saturation. The receiving body, the water, can't contain anymore. It's completely saturated in it. It is completely taken up as much salt as it humanly, well, not humanly, but as much as it waterly can. It's filled. It is supplied to fullness. So tonight, as we talk about 
a marks of a maturing disciple? What is the evidence? What does it look like to be someone who is actively and growing in their walk with Christ? One of the defining characteristics is scripture saturation. Being so filled with the scripture that your body can't take any more of it and to the point where it is overflowing. You absorb so much that it just starts to overflow elsewhere. So on your introduction there, James started his letter off by easing the mind of afflicted believers that suffering is all part of the growth process and discipleship. We talked about this last week. If you find yourself in the midst of temptations and testings, you're doing something right. Somebody tell me 2 Timothy 3.12. Yay. Absolutely. You're doing something right. James said last week, count it all joy. That was last week. The next principle God highlights through this thunderous book is that scripture saturation also marks a maturing disciple. So look with me in verse 21 of chapter 1. This is where we picked up last week. Can I get a reader for that? Left off. Thank you. Not picked up. AJ, go ahead. Wherefore, lay apart all thy filthiness and uh, superfluity. Uh, nice. Nailed it. Of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. He says, lay apart all filthiness, dirtiness, superfluity. Anybody know what that word means? Super. <laughs> nice try. Excess. Yes, it means abundance. Thank you, Sammy. It means abundance. It means saturation, all abundance, everything that is excess, lay it aside, the wickedness, that's what naughtiness is, wickedness, sinfulness, set it aside and receive with meekness. That word means mild. It has the implication of being have, having strength but having it under control. Not weakness. Just because it rhymes doesn't mean that that means it that way. And that's where a lot of people see it that way. When they say that Jesus Christ was very meek, they look at that and they see the flowery, effeminate-looking paintings and drawings that have been done all throughout the Enlightenment era and the way that they've depicted him in movies. He looks like he's very, very flowery and weak. That's not what meekness means. It means strength under control. It means mild-tempered. Receive the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. If the word of God says that it is able to save your souls, that must mean that your souls are in need of saving. Something that isn't really often talked about in a lot of churches. A lot of times you have a guy standing up behind a pulpit and he's talking about whatever the big Christian book of the week is, whatever the big Christian author of the time is. Or a lot of times they'll talk about how God and Jesus and the Word of God and church can better your life and make you happier and give you the things that you want. That is huge nowadays for some reason. And that's why we looked at what we looked at last week. Because if you were to go back to the first century Christians and talk to the guys in verses 1 to 20 who were running for their very lives because of their faith, who probably watched their families get slaughtered before their very eyes. And if you were to go back and talk to them about how, man, doesn't Jesus just make your life so much better and so much more wonderful? And doesn't he give you all these riches and prosperity? They would probably be laughing at you. 
And in fact, they probably wouldn't have much to say about that. You see, Jesus never said that when you come to know him, when you come to be saved or come to enter into a personal relationship with him, he never said that, that your life was going to be all sunshine and rainbows. He said, no, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Jesus Christ is inside of you because you are born again, you've trusted him, then greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who can touch you? What's the worst thing that anyone can do to you? Thankfully, we still live in a somewhat civilized time and day and age where no one is going to kill you at your schools, for the most part, because you shared your faith with them. The principal isn't going to take you down to the office where they have a guillotine set up and they're going to chop your head off. It's not going to happen. It used to happen, but we're not in a day and age where that's going to happen to you. No, the worst case scenario really for you guys is that you might lose a few friends. You might lose your popularity. No one might want to hang out with you and invite you over to their house Friday night. And even if someone is psychotic enough and maybe under the possession of a, a demon or two, and they do end up taking your life, hey, you're in the presence of God Almighty. That's right. Let's do it. <laughs> Are you the executioner in that one? Or? <laughs> but see, he mentions here that we need to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. You see... First thing we're going to see here is the evidence of Scripture's impact. It starts within. It starts within. On your study sheet, genuine saving faith can only come from a heart that has been pierced with the word of truth. Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it's by grace we're saved. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about our souls needing saved here. That's what James says. It's right there. We just read it. By grace are ye saved through what? Or by faith. Yeah, grace be saved by faith. Through faith, by faith. I can't remember. I got a lot going on in my head right now. And what does Romans 10, 17 say? So that, this is a verse everyone should memorize. Every disciple should have this memorized. So then faith cometh by hearing. Okay, if salvation is needed, if my soul needs saved because there's something that's off with me, more on that in a second, then I want to know what it is this book has to say about what it means to be saved. And if faith is a component of it, I want to know how I get it. Because I can't just have just blind faith. I can't just have faith in like, oh, you know, an intellectual assent. No, no, no. It has to cost something. It has to, you have to give something of that. You need to give your whole heart as we study out the scriptures. But faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the, say it again, Isabella, the word of God. Hold your place here and turn to your right one book. We're in the book of James. The very next book over is called 1 Peter. Look at chapter 1. Peter also has something to say about what it means to be born again. And he also says that it has to do with this engrafted word. Look with me in verse 23. Can I get a reader for verse 23? Andy, go ahead. I did. <laughs> All right, being born again of not of fruitful seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So here again, he's talking about being born again. 
It's not enough that we're just born once. And it doesn't matter anything you do after that first birth. No, you must be born again in order to have something happen to you. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the, as this verse says, incorruptible seed, which is called the Word of God, and it liveth and abideth forever. And jump down to verse 25. It says, But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the, what? Which by the gospel is preached unto you. The gospel. Somebody tell me, what is the gospel? In the simplest way you can think to to put it. Give you a hint. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4. Carlin? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, what was that, AJ? I said according to the Scriptures. Louder. According to the Scriptures. The Word of God. The engrafted Word as we're talking about. That's where we find out what the Gospel is. A lot of people talk about the name of Jesus Christ. A lot of people talk about who Jesus is. But in Psalm 138.2, the Bible says that God took His Word and He magnified it above all His name. Because it's through the Word that you even know who His name is. It's through the Word of God that we even know what the Gospel is. We wouldn't know a thing about the death, burial, and resurrection had it not been for the Word of God making its way throughout all of time to get to you here tonight. He must have something He wants to tell you. Are you listening? So you see, genuine saving faith can only come from a heart that has been pierced with the Word of truth. Why did I say the word pierced? When you think about pierced, what do you guys think about? He's just the help. Sword! You know that the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is likened unto a sword? It's almost like a surgeon's scalpel where it pierces and penetrates our hearts saturates our hearts. It fills. But there needs to be a cut to happen. Now, back in James chapter 1, you can flip back there, it says that we need to receive with meekness the engrafted Word. And what's contained within that engrafted Word, Carlin? The Gospel. gospel. That's Carlin. You're Noah. You're Noah. (laughs) (laughs) Noah Carlin Mays. Well, no, nickname. Yeah, it's like quote marks. Sometimes they do that for nicknames. We'll talk about it later. You got this. And contained within that engrafted word is the gospel. And it needs to be received in order to have our souls saved. Now, does anybody know what the word engraft means? You got you got participation points for the day. You're good. Sammy. Like a big tree and cut off like a little tree and like stick it in there so it helps it like grow. Exactly. I even put it on the slide just in case you guys needed to write it down, but Sammy just nailed it. It's inserting a branch of one tree. It's inserting a branch of... Are you really, though? Inserting a branch of one tree or plant into another. Now, note this. Note this by incision. You can't engraft a one branch into another tree without cutting into it. It has to pierce. It has to cut. But it's not only that. The reason why someone would do that, it's to generate, to bring forth life, and to reproduce future growth. We're talking about the marks of a maturing disciple. If you want to bring forth life, if you want to reproduce future growth, it also means to set or fix deep and firm. 
If you want that in your life, if you want that in your Christian walk, it starts with having this sharp two-edged sword cut you by saying things to you like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It needs to cut you by saying that it's by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You need to have this book, the Word, cut you by saying, hey, even on your best day, your works in the eyes of a holy and righteous God are but filthy, stinking rags. We need to have this book cut us by saying, you know what? There is a heaven and there is a hell. And it's not that God has all the good people go to one place and He has all of the bad people go to another place. No. He who is not born again or he that believeth not is condemned already, Jesus said in John chapter 3. You're born into this life condemned because you have a sin nature. You're not made in the image of God because of Adam and Eve's sin. You need a transplant. You need something engrafted into you because you're just a dead tree stump. I actually was able to get a video of this. And I thought this was just neat. So you see how they're cutting into it? This is dead wood. It's producing no fruit. So he makes two incisions on the side and he gets budded branches. And he has to insert it. He has to engraft it into the stump. And then he mends it together. That tree will grow to produce a lot of fruit. But something has to happen first. It needs to be cut. It needs to be pricked. It needs to be prodded. And it needs to have something that is incorruptible, incorruptible seed engrafted into it, inserted into it. You understand that what's happening in this video is also exactly what Jesus Christ did for you? God saw your sin condition. God saw that you were helpless against doing anything that could possibly get into heaven. Because you realize that according to 1 Peter and Matthew chapter 5, the standard to get into heaven is perfection. I mean, just in the last 25 minutes, you guys, some of you have already broken that. So what God decided to do is he decided to come down here and be born as a man of incorruptible seed. Not the seed of a woman. Not the seed of a man. Or I'm sorry, the seed of a man, which is corrupted. No, God became a man, came down on this planet, and he allowed others to cut him on his back. He allowed others to pierce his, his head with crown of thorns. He allowed others to pierce his hands and his feet. And he took upon himself, he took in himself your sin and my sin. He took it from you and put it on him, and he died on a tree to pay the price of sins for all of mankind. So now all of us who believe and call upon Him, the Bible says that He takes you and He puts you in Christ. He'll engraft you into Him if you call upon Him. That's why He says to Nicodemus in John 3, ye must be born again. And that's why James is writing here, keeping in mind the audience, 
that even though he's writing to a whole bunch of Jews in first century who believe Jesus Christ as their Lord, they're on the run for their lives. Not everyone in their group might have been someone who was a believer. So he's letting them know, hey, this book's able to save. It's able to save your soul. It's able to save the souls of those who might be in your presence. So hit them with the truth. You see the next point on your outline. When the engrafted word leads to a new birth, because ye must be born again, it will be evident to all that you are not the same. When you are saturated or engrafted with Jesus Christ, um, it's pretty evident that what you started out as, you are not the same. It's visible. I can handle it. I can see it. It's evident to everybody in our midst that there's something different about somebody who is born again. I'm saying this not to present it as though this may be the first time you've heard it. I'm saying this for those of you who have heard it so many times and it's become so used you've become so used to it from going to church every single Sunday that you might have become numb to this. There are many of you who 10 minutes ago when I started talking about the gospel and what it meant to be born again, you tuned out because you know the gospel. My question to you, if that was you in here is has there been any evident changes in your life since becoming born again? What marks have there been? What evidence is there? You see, when the engrafted word leads to a new birth, it's going to be evident to all that you are not the same person. You cannot be the same person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ and grafted in, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When was that moment for you where you called upon the name of the Lord to save you, not trusting in your good works, realizing that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the grave for your sins, and you called upon Him to save you? When was that? Do you even have a moment like that? If not, I submit to you that you're not born again, even more so if there's not been any changes in your life. David said in Psalm 51.10, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Anybody know what 1 Corinthians 8.3 says? If any man love God, same is known of him. Anybody want to drink this? No. You'll, you'll go into cardiac arrest if you drink that. But it'll be one way to know for sure that there's something different about it. It'll be one way to know for sure. So question, if we went to your school tomorrow and asked, is anything different about your name? Is there something different about them? More different than any of your friends or your friends or your teachers? your siblings, whatever. Is there anything that, that's different about them? Is there anything that stands out about any one of you? What would they say? If we went to your house and asked your family that, is there anything different about them? What would they say? Is there evidence? 
What is it? You know, I thought about this this idea of the new birth, and it just popped in my head. You know, a baby in the womb is vastly different than a newborn baby. And you might be thinking, yeah, duh. But think about it. I actually had Jamie help me with this list. You realize that a baby in the womb to a newborn baby goes from breathing fluid to breathing air. In the womb, it's not breathing air, it's breathing fluid. And somehow God is able to protect that baby the entire time. But there's a difference after it's born. It goes from eating amniotic fluid to then after birth, drinking milk and formula. After it's born, digestion begins. After it's born, the body of the baby can't regulate its own body temperature for several months. It has to get acclimated to the new surroundings and environment that it has. Point being, it's different from the womb than it was when it was born. After birth, a newborn baby begins its own circulation of blood. After birth, it, the brain of the baby begins to develop language and understanding, something it could not do when it was still in the womb. After birth, the baby's eyes begin to focus on things and people, something it could not do when it was in the womb. And it starts to recognize the scent of their mother and gravitate to the mother's scent. It's still a baby, but there are vastly different changes that happen and occur after it's born. So I'm asking you, and please don't tune this out, what changes have occurred in your life since you were born again? Or since you profess to be born again? What are they? Because if you're not saturated with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not saturated and grafted with His Word, you might not be saved if there's no changes, if there's no evidence that you belong to Him. You need to evaluate that. Now, presenting things a little bit more practically for us, to those of us who are born again, to those of us who have had the Word of God engrafted and our souls saved because we've trusted Christ as our Savior. Look again at the beginning of verse 21. He says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, that means dirtiness, all filth, and superfluity, abundance, saturation of naughtiness, wickedness. Lay it aside, in other words. Put it apart so that you can receive it, so that you can continue being saturated in the Word of God. And don't miss this. For those of you who are born again, you know what the evidence is? You know what one of the marks that shows you belong to Him and that you're growing? And this is key. This is very deep. This is, this is really, really deep. And it's going to be a big thing to wrap your head around. You've got to catch on to this. It's on your outline, though. Here's how deep it is. When this begins to happen, God will begin to pur purge from your life all your poop. Poop is the blank. Why are you looking at me like I just said the square root of something? <laughs> Write P-O-O-P in all capital letters, poop. Write it backwards for all I care. <laughs> 
Put little googly eyes on the double O's. I don't give a poop. I got you. Oh, I got you. Oh, I see what he did there. That is literally your, your blank. See, like I said, very deep and intellectual. But that's what he's saying. Receive the word of God, but in order to be saturated with it, you have to get rid of the crap in your life, the dirt, the filthiness, the poop, if you will. We already talked about in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. Hold your place here and turn over to Deuteronomy 23. Guys aren't getting candy for saying it. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12. Who's there? I need a reader. Deuteronomy 23, 12. All right. Kendall, go ahead and read verses 12 to 14. How are you guys not like giggling the entire time you're reading this? <laughs> yeah, Andy is. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp. In other words, the camp is where the people are. Go outside of that camp and hey, verse 13, thou shalt have a paddle upon thy what? And what weapon did the Israelites have back then? Swords. Sharp two-edged sword. You needed a paddle with that sucker. And it shall be, <laughs> when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, he's talking about pooping, people. If you have a marginal Bible, put that down there. He's talking about pooping. When thou shalt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. You know what? When you have crap in your life, that you need to get rid of in order to ease the pain, in order to ease your walk with God, you got to take it outside the camp and deal with it. You got to take it outside the camp and deal with it. You know why? This passage that we just read is actually one of the passages that show your Bible was not written by man, it was written by God penned by man, written by God. You realize that up until the late 1800s in London, here in the States, specifically in metropolitan areas, do you realize how people got rid of wastes? They would be dumping their poop and everything else on the, on the road, on the streets, on the sidewalk where people would walk. It's happening in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Look how that city's going. But do you realize what then happened? Literally. Because they have the truck. That was good. Yes, you do. Do you realize what would happen back then when they did that? People would get sick. People would get infected by others' filth. The filth that you have in your life you need a, a paddle attached to your weapon. And you need to take that weapon with you Whoa. outside of the camp 
and you need to deal with the crap that's in your life otherwise and i'm telling you because it's going to happen and it's going to blow up in somebody's face and when it blows up in somebody's face it's going to infect the rest of us i'm talking it could be one of you it could be one of your leaders if we don't deal with the stuff that's in our life if we don't deal with it properly according to the way the word of god says it's going to infect their whole camp i've seen it happen before turn over to judges chapter 3 you got to take it out. You got to go to a, a retreatable place and you got to deal with that stuff before it infects the rest of us. Caleb, didn't you do this for uh, one of the guys' studies? What are you talking about? Judges chapter 3? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so impressive to himself that he forgot it, that he taught it. <laughs> judges chapter 3. So we're in the time of the judges where whenever Israel would sin, because they didn't get rid of the dirt in their life, uh, they would fall enslaved to another enemy country. And so God would raise up a judge. Look with me in verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, as they did seven times in the book of Judges, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite. Hey, there you go, Benny. A man left-handed. Hey, there you go, South, South Pauls. And by him the children of Israel sent to present or sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a what? Dagger. And what did that dagger have? Two edges. Uh-huh. He had a sharp two-edged sword, which is what Hebrews 4:12 says is like the word of God. A cubit length. He was able to conceal it, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought this present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. Even his name. You can't say his name without sounding like he's fat. Eglon. <laughs> and when he had made an end to offer the present, verse 18, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. This is like a spec ops mission. I love this. Anyone who says the Bible's boring, you've not read it. I'm sorry. If you say the Bible's boring, you've not read it. This is literally a special operations mission happening right now, full of espionage and spy stories and everything. O king, who said, keep silence, and all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud... This is the South Paul, this is the Benjaminite, came unto Eglon, and he was sitting in a summer parlor which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, oh, don't miss these words. He's not lying to him either. I have a what? Yeah. I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft, all, you know what that message from God was? A sharp two-edged sword. You go into your schools every single day. You have a message from God, and it's a sharp two-edged sword. And he had before this dagger uh, and thrust it. Verse 22, and the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. Uh, and the what came out? Anybody want to take a stab in the dark? Poop. No pun intended. Poop. 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 Dirt came out of him. You know what happens? You can turn back to James chapter 1 now. The guy died. That's it. The dirt came out. Hey, listen, listen, listen. Listen, listen. 
if you want to get serious about growing in the walk of the Lord, you want to be serious about keeping the momentum going in our midst, in our ranks, you got to be a man or a woman of the sword. You have to be saturated. You have to be engulfed. You got to let this book completely saturate itself all through you. And you got to get the dirt out of your life. Otherwise, you're not going to grow. Otherwise, like Rick was saying on Sunday, you're going to get to winter camp, and winter camp's going to be the new summer camp. And summer camp's going to be the new winter camp. Only what you say at summer camp is exactly what you said last summer camp, and that's just going to be a repeating theme. Then you're going to graduate, and when you graduate, it's not even going to dawn on you that, oh, crap, no pun intended, I have no more summer camps left for me to get right with God. And then it's going to dawn on you a little too late that I need to start being more responsible for my own walk now, and I should have taken this seriously when I was in high school. And doggone it, I don't want to see that happen to any of you. So let's get serious now. It seems like God's doing that in our midst with everything that's going on. All the new things that has just been a natural add-on that, that's been happening in our midst and in our ranks, just from activities we have going to, to, to little touch points here and there of ministry. Let's keep it going. But watch out for the dirt that wants to creep its way back into your life. You're probably going to face, face some filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness tomorrow when you go back to school. Make sure you got a paddle on your weapon. And just to bring it more home for a devotional standpoint, 2 Timothy, if you want to write down additional notes, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, hey, yay, let all of you who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's what we're talking about here. That's what these Old Testament pictures are about. Colossians 3.5 says, mortify the deeds of your flesh. And if you have allowed the engrafted word that not only saved your soul, if you're still allowing that engrafted word to continue to do work in your life today, just like salvation, it's going to impact you and start from within. But the next bullet or bolded point on your outline, the evidence of Scripture's impact is going to work its way out. It has to. That's what the rest of the book of James chapter 1 says. It must find its way out. It can't just stay inside. Something that's interesting, and this will be the last time I, I refer back to this heart attack in a... It just turned to concrete. I could barely lift the spoon. You know what's interesting? I just learned this today, and I wish I would have learned it earlier. I was on the phone with your dad, Kylie. Is Kylie even here? Ray's here. No, Kylie's got soccer. That's right. Ray, I was on the phone with your dad earlier, and he was telling me something that... Hey, if you knew this, shut up. It's been a while since I've been in school. Spirit of Andy just came over me. You realize that if you were to heat this up, what would happen? You know why? Because when the water starts to get hotter and it starts to warm up, the molecules of the water expand. They become active. When the heat is on, they get active. And they start to spread. And as the molecules spread they begin to absorb the salt. When the heat's on in your life, 
throwback to last week's lesson, and you're going through trials and testings and temptations and the heat's on in your life, you know what you'll be able to do during those times? Absorb more. You'll be able to take in more of that engrafted word because you'll be burning it off, just like athletes in here. Athletes, you guys need to be eating large quantities of food more often than you are during your off season because you're burning it off. You're active, your body's heating it up. It's absorbing more. But as soon as the heat goes off, you know what's gonna happen? Molecules are gonna come back together and they're going to push out the salt and you're gonna get dense. It's gotta work its way out though has to work its way out. You see the point on there? A disciple saturated in the word will lead an active lifestyle. Actually, let's just read verse 22. But be ye what? Doers of the word. Be active and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass, a mirror if you will. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, the engrafted word, the Bible, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be a mature disciple, you got to be active. You gotta have an active lifestyle. You have to put these things to work. Philippians 2.12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Do you act differently at school than you do around mom and dad? Do you act differently with your lost friends when you're out with them than you do around your saved friends? But now much more in my absence, work out. Get what's inside of you out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Heat, activity. Let the molecule spread so you can absorb more. And hey, bodily exercise profiteth little. It still profits, but it's little. But rather, godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. we got to be active. We have to work out what God worked in. He engrafted and saturated our souls with the Word of God. Now it's time for us to do something with it so we can receive more. That's why he says, Be ye doers of the Word, not hearers only. And if you're just a hearer only... Now, now let me say this first before I go into that point. Hearing is important. We've established that, right? Because faith cometh by hearing. hearing. you got to hear in order to be saved. you got to hear in order to have faith. you got to hear the Word of God. But it can't just stop there. If you've called upon Jesus Christ to save you because you trust Him as your Lord and Savior, then you're born again. Now it's time to get to work. Now it's time for you not just to be a hearer only, but to be a doer. If after you've been born again, you just continue to be a pew sitter every Wednesday and every Sunday, and yeah, you show up, but you're not doing any Bible reading throughout the week, you're not... You might show up to an activity, but you'd rather be elsewhere. You might text back whenever somebody in your midst texts you, says, how you doing? 
but that's it. And it's very, very just surface level because you don't want anybody to know the truth that you're not really in your word or you're not really getting anything out of it. And everything's just very surface level. I submit to you that you're just attending church. I submit to you the possibility that you're just attending church and you're just hearing the word of God every Wednesday and every Sunday and that's it. You're deceiving yourselves, the Bible says. We just read it. Don't deceive yourself in thinking it's impossible for you to be deceived. You got to think about that one for a second. Don't deceive yourself in thinking you can't be deceived because you're deceiving yourself if you think that. you're here only, you're deceiving your own self. You're deceiving yourself that you're actually doing anything. And John 8.31 says that it's a mark of a disciple to continue in the word. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, saturated, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So the sub point on there, be not deceived. Attendance does not equal maturity. Attendance does not equal maturity. Don't think just because you show up that you're some spiritual giant. Don't think just because you show up week after week that that is doing something for the Lord. <laughs> Again, if you have that mindset from now until the rapture of the church, I have a feeling there's going to be some first century Christians who are going to want to have a word with you. They'll tell you a thing or two about what it means to be a doer of the word. <sighs> not looking forward to that tongue lashing. Hopefully they're gracious. Be not deceived. Attendance does not equal maturity. We're familiar with Revelation 3.15 through 17. It's, it's describing a church that is very reminiscent of how things are today. That they're not hot, they're not cold, they're what? Lukewarm. They're lukewarm. They're, they're hearers only. And as a result, they are deceived. They're self-deceived because thou sayest, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. I go to a, a Bible preaching, Bible teaching church. I have a Bible I trust every word, and I got a solid youth group. No pun intended. Man, I'm just rolling with the puns tonight. And you might think that, man, that's it. That's the epitome of the Christian walk. I am there. I've arrived. I'll never say that because I'm humble, but I've arrived. And knowest not, thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what Revelation 3.17 says. Don't be deceived by that. Be a doer. He, he equates the word of God. I, I'm not going to, and that's the thing. I, I'm so glad of where God took this message because I battled with this, even to literally. Thank you for mentioning 655 because I needed the extra time. Even up until the wire, just battling. I was like, Lord, I, I've used verse 22 and verse 25 is a cross-reference so many stinking times and other messages. I'm like, I don't want to belabor this point. And honestly, I'm not going to belabor the point. That's why I'm glad God filled it with other things for us to talk about. We're familiar with the fact that this book is a glass. 1 Corinthians 13 says it's a glass darkly that we look through. We're able to look into the perfect law of liberty and we see the superfluity of naughtiness and all of the filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And we realize, I am not okay. And I must do something with what is wrong with me. Otherwise, I'm just going to be a hearer only. And I'm going to forget what manner of man I am. And that happens to Christians left and right today. They forget what they've been saved from. And they forget 
what they've been saved to. You've been saved from an eternity, separated from a loving God who sent his son to die for you because he loves you so much. You've been, sent, you've been saved from an eternity, separated from him in hell for eternity, and you've been saved to go out in this incredible mission, this incredible spec ops mission, filled with espionage and, and spy games, and you get to go out and you get to try to rescue people. And when they're so caught up into their sin, you get to take a sharp two-headed sword and thrust it right into their gut so that they die to self and they realize, oh, that hurt, but this is what I need. And all the dirt comes out of their life and they get saved and they want to join you in the work. That's what you've been saved to. But if you're just coming to church and you just hear this week after week and you're not actually doing anything with it, you're caught up in deception. Can't be that way. All right, let's wrap this up. Verse 26. If any man among you Seem to be what? And bridleth not his tongue. Think about a horse's bridle. It's the bit in its mouth. But deceiveth his own heart. Man, a lot of talk about deception tonight. Don't be deceived and thinking you can't be deceived. Is any man among you who seems to be religious, but he bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart? This man's religion is what? Hmm. Pure religion. Interesting. And undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We, we hinted at this in our introduction two weeks back. Because what's the thing we always say whenever we're at the mall witnessing or hopefully you're having these conversations with your friends at school and you say, hey, look, I don't know what your church experience has been like, but you know what the Bible actually says about, about salvation? It's not religion. It's what? A relationship with Jesus Christ. And man, we can take you from Genesis to Revelation and show you that. Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you. It's not about doing things to get his appeasement. But wouldn't you know it, here we are, and we just found the only time in all of the Bible where religion is used in a positive context. James is saying there is such a thing as pure religion. Well, keep in mind what I teased at in our introduction. Not only is James writing the first century Christians on the run for their life, and they're like, uh, we don't have a Bible. Is that guy with us, or is he against us? Does he, does he believe the same things we do, or does he not? And not only is he writing historically to them, he's writing practically, devotionally to you and I today to help us out, but also doctrinally speaking, he's writing to who? People who one day in the future will pick this book up when a whole vast majority of people on this planet, not vast majority, but a lot of people on this planet, evaporate, and then they're going to be left here, and they're going to get a notification from FEMA on their phones probably at 2.18 p.m., and it's going to be a national broadcast emergency saying that millions of people have just disappeared and planes are crashing out of the sky, trains are derailing, and car crashes are happening all over the place. You think that was interesting today, by the way? It's just a test. <laughs> sure it is, Noah. It was a national test. Are you talking about the F-35 plane in South Carolina? No, I was talking about the, the test that all of us in the continental U.S. got on our phones from FEMA. Anywho, when that happens because the church, true believers, have been raptured out of here, 
there's going to be people who pick up this book and once again they're going to be confused not knowing is that guy with us or is he against us what is true faith and true religion versus fake religion or a false religion they're going to be wondering that so pure religion and this is key we we already covered what the new birth is salvation is the new birth pure religion is simply living right after the new birth. I love Micah 6, 8. It, it, we used to sing a song about it. And he, he says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Salvation is not religion. It's a relationship with Christ because of the <laughs> new birth, trusting in Christ as your Savior. But after that, Pure religion is just living right. It's doing the right thing. And he gives us a couple of markers here to help us out here. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Anybody know what happens there? Saul screws up royally. He offers a whole bunch of sacrifices to, and thinks that that's going to please the Lord somehow. Or he saves a whole bunch of animals that God said, no, I want you to kill those things. And he saves them. He's like, oh, I thought we'd sacrifice to the Lord. And you know what Samuel says to Saul? And he's like, God's not pleasing those things. To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. Yeah, living right. And Titus 2.12 says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's pure living. But be not deceived. As we saw in verse 26, If your tongue is beyond your control, your discipleship is empty. He says his religion is vain if you can't bridle your tongue. Vain means empty. And consequently, how does this hit you and I today? If you have a tongue that's out of control, maybe not with foul language, but maybe cutting down one another, talking back, even just an overabundance of sarcasm. Sarcasm has its place. Elijah was sarcastic in 1 Kings 18. But if it goes too far where it's out of your control, you can't control it, things just blah, come out like Eglon. <laughs> your discipleship's empty. I didn't say it. Just quoting the book. Next. Oh, no, not next. On that same note. Luke 6, 44 to 46. Every tree... Incorruptible seed and grafting. I love the theme. Every tree is known by his fruit. I'll just pretend this is a saturated cup of water. You're known. It's evident to all. A good man out of the good treasure of his, what? Bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is what? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't get rid of the dirt. That's why. For of the abundance, saturation, and grafting of the heart, his mouth, what? And I love it. The very next verse, Jesus says, And why call ye... Me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. So mark it down. If you name the name of Christ, if you say that I'm a Christian and he's your Lord, but you don't do what he says, you're not living right. It's not the marks of a, true, uh, of a, of a mature disciple. Now next bullet point. Be not deceived. If you're not investing time and energy into others, especially those who are suffering... You are not a maturing disciple. Look what he says in the first part of verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the, the who? 
fatherless and who? Yeah, man, lack of strong godly men in homes. Or because the enemy is going after the man in the home and to keep himself unspotted. Yeah, those who are suffering because they're orphaned or because they're widowed. Bring it, bring it home to us, though. If you're just not investing time and energy into others who need it, who are in need, because maybe they haven't been discipled yet, or maybe you've noticed, man, I've not seen them in a while. I want to text because I'm non-confrontational, and it's just less awkward that way, but, man, I think they need to hear my voice. And to be honest, I want to hear their voice. I'm going to call them. And Lord, if you lay it on my heart, let's go a step further and let's meet with them because I just want to see how they're doing. Because I haven't seen them in a while. Or maybe I've only seen them once every now and then. Maybe they need your phone call. Maybe they're waiting for it. Maybe they're not wanting to ask for help. Or maybe they're deceived and think they don't need help. But if you're a maturing disciple and you see it, do something about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but as I said, this passage has a tribulation period application. And if you want to do a further study, I challenge you to read Matthew 25 later. There's a parable there where it's, called, it's the, the parable of the goats and the sheep nations. But basically, it makes it clear. One's salvation during the tribulation period. Again, not right now. Right now, it's by grace through faith because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Then, after the rapture of the church, different ballgame. One salvation during the tribulation period will be dependent upon their willingness to help afflicted Israelites as well as their need to be without spot from any mark on their hands or foreheads. You got that right. Because in the tribulation period, you better be religious. Right now, God is so gracious to us that it's not our salvation is not up to any works of our own. It's only by the blood of Christ and our trust therein. But then, in the future, it's going to be works-based. So if you're going to be here for that, be real friendly to any Israelite you come across. Give him food. Give him water. Give him shelter. Oh, and also keep all Ten Commandments and also don't, whatever the cost, get a mark of the beast in your hand or in your forehead. Or you can get saved right now and not have to worry about any of that. And maybe that's why you're here. Maybe that's why you've been coming to this church your entire life is for this moment tonight because maybe God, not because of me, but God, because of His Word, seeing things in a different way, finally broke through to all the minutia and the dirt that's been surrounding your heart and he's finally getting a hold and getting you to hear and see exactly what you need right now. I'm hoping and that's been my prayer this entire week. Look how verse 27 ends. And to keep himself unspotted without a mark, not filthy and dirty from the world. So pure religion is living right living right after the new birth, but be not deceived. If the lost world sees you as a plain cup of water and no different from them, examine your saturation level. 
examine how much of God's Word might actually be engrafted in you. I can't help but think about... Oh, this is the last one. If you, if you see somebody have need and you shut up your compassion towards them, how can you say you love God? Now, here's this one. I can't help but think about Lot for this one. There were men in Sodom who wanted to do wickedly to angelic hosts that were at Lot's house. And Lot said to the Sodomites, I pray you, what? Oh, he was very, very friendly with those in the world. And then later, and Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. They're sending out FEMA alerts all over. People are gone. Will you get out? Will you, be, will you trust him as Savior? But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law because they knew his testimony stunk. Because he wouldn't lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Because he wouldn't let the word of God have the preeminence because he didn't want to grow in his faith. So don't let that be you. Let's pray.